BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. More tragically, a giraffe <laughs> to shut down production. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> when a giraffe stepped on its own penis. <laughs> What? A giraffe. Why? I don't know. Apparently, a why giraffe. would that shut down production? Just step off of it. You like step. It stepped on its own penis and it hurt itself so bad that they. <laughs> so in. So insane. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to another episode of What Went Wrong. I am one of your hosts, Lizzie Bassett, here with uh, your other host, Chris Winterbauer. Chris, how's it going? Lizzie, it's going great. It's almost September. I have no idea what's happened over the last six months. My life is a watercolor painting underneath a blow dryer Aww. and all the colors are running in every direction. That sounds good. So, yeah, feeling good. <laughs> but I'm very excited to talk about a very bad movie today. Um, and that would be 1967's Dr. Doolittle. Woo! Uh, Lizzie, uh, had you ever seen Dr. Doolittle before? No, I think I meant to ask my dad. I think he loves this movie. And I have a lot of mm. questions about how and why <laughs> after having watched it. Um, Fair. Yeah. I saw this movie uh, when I was, I think, eight or nine years old at a movie theater. My grandparents took me to see it, and they were big Rex Harrison fans. And this, I need to talk to them about that after researching this movie. Um, and so I had like vaguely fond memories of the movie, but rewatching it uh, eviscerated all of those. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned you did not enjoy this film, and one of the things that I'm sure turned you off the most was it's two and a half hour running time. Two and a half hours long. And also didn't know it was a musical. And I'm going to go ahead and put musical in quotes, in air quotes, yes. because I don't really think we can call it that. <laughs> I think you could call it... A toxical. <laughs> Sounds like a poisonous popsicle, but here we go. Uh, Dr. Doolittle is a 20th Century Fox production. It was released in 1967. As you mentioned, it is a quote musical. And also I'll put quotes around comedy directed <laughs> yes. by... Richard Fleischer. It was written by Leslie Brickus with music by Lionel Newman, starring Rex Harrison, Anthony Newley, Samantha Eggers, and Richard Attenborough as the circus leader, uh, if you recognized him. No, I didn't even uh, realize. I saw yeah. his name at the beginning, and I was like, oh, where's the old man from Jurassic Park going to be? And then I totally forgot he, about him. He plays the guy that runs the circus that oh. uh, like early in the movie. Anyway. It's based on the novel series of the same name by Hugh Lofting, who's a British writer. It was shot using the deluxe color film technology, not Technicolor. So this was single strip, not three strip color uh, film. And we will briefly touch at the end on Eddie Murphy and Robert Downey Jr.'s respective reboots of this property. But our focus is on this original adaptation from 1967. So 
the story. Lizzie, I'm not going to let you explain the story because trying to Why? explain the story of this movie is a nightmare. <laughs> it is. I mean, please go for it if you're able. Yeah, not a problem. I couldn't even oh, do Oh, I it. can sum this up real fast. So there's a doctor who realizes that if he can learn how to talk to animals, he can be the greatest animal doctor in the world. And so he does that. He There's like a two-headed alpaca situation. There's a potentially racially insensitive stereotype of an Irishman who brings a child to this doctor. They get shipwrecked with this lady who just cooks for them um, on a floating island. Yeah, see, nothing happens. It roughly combined the plotting of the three original Doolittle books. This was a series of books. As Lizzie mentioned, Dr. John Little, played by Rex Harrison, is a British veterinary doctor who Wait, doesn't care for humans and only cares for animals. His name is Little? Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, okay. I meant Dr. John Doolittle. Uh, <laughs> that would be a weird <laughs> twist. The movie's ostensibly about his quest to find a supposed great mm-hmm. pink snail. So if Wizard of Oz is the greatest example of a studio wielding power over its actors in an abusive way, Dr. Doolittle is its antidote. This production was plagued by many things, but (laughs) Rex Harrison, the lead actor, was certainly the scourge of production. Today's episode will be a journey into the lengths Harrison went to, be they intentional or not, to externalize his inner turmoil onto those around him in some of the most absurd ways possible. Great. Quick note, I pulled much of this episode's information from two really good books. Mark Harris's Pictures at a Revolution, Five Movies, and The Birth of a New Hollywood, and Roadshow, The Fall of Film Musicals in the 1960s by Matthew Kennedy. Let's dive in. (laughs) So, as I mentioned, Dr. Doolittle was created by Hugh Lofting, a British author, in 1920. He made a series of these books for kids, it followed the character, and a bunch of movie studios wanted to buy the rights, including Disney and Fox. He turned them all down. He died in 1947. The rights went to his widow, Josephine, and maybe interested in a little cash. Josephine's not holding on to him quite as hard as Hugh did. So she options them to a producer, Helen Winston, in 1960. Remember that name? She will come back. So in 1963, Arthur P. Jacobs, who was like a public relations guy that decided to become a movie producer decides that he wants to produce an adaptation of Dr. Doolittle. And he's heard that the rights are available because Winston's adaptation has fallen through. So being a PR guy, he meets with Lofting's attorney and has this great pitch. He's going to turn it into a musical comedy. And it's going to star Rex Harrison, who not that many people knew, but he was on the London stage play version of My Fair Lady at the time with Julie Andrews. Wait, had he done the movie of My Fair Lady He was filming it when this got pitched. And so it's like Rex Harrison and the songs and lyrics are going to be written by Alan J. Lerner, who wrote all the songs to My Fair Lady. So that's going to be like the ultimate duo to make this movie. And My Fair Lady is... What happened? Well, you'll see. So My Fair Lady is in production at this point at Warner Brothers. Uh, The 55-year-old Rex Harrison was a bit of an odd choice for the role. Uh, He was more of a serious actor. He was born in Lancashire, England. He attended college in Liverpool. And he came up through work on the stage. His career was interrupted by World War II. He flew in the Royal Air Force and he found fame later in life, basically. So it wasn't until 1963's Cleopatra, where he played Julius Caesar and the forthcoming My Fair Lady adaptation that he would find worldwide recognition. And if you don't Mm. know Rex Harrison by name, you do know him by voice. Harrison's Mm -hmm. speech pattern is famously the inspiration for Stewie on Seth MacFarlane's Family Guy. Oh, yeah. Here's a brief clip of MacFarlane explaining the story that led to this influence. Yeah, there's a great 
I, I read the, uh, the, the, the biography of Alan J. Lerner, who is the lyricist. And, mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about. And there was, I guess, he and, uh, he and, uh, he and Rex Harrison were strolling through Hyde Park one day during the, during the uh, development of that show. And, and uh, they were both talking about the trouble they were having with their wives. And Rex, who, who obviously was later turned out to be gay, said, I say, Alan, wouldn't it be marvelous if we turned out to be homosexuals? <laughs> And, <laughs> and you got the sense in reading that I'm like, God, this this is this is one guy kind of putting the bone out there, <laughs> and the other guy probably going, Yeah, that'd be that'd be pretty funny, Rex. Um, <laughs> this is my hotel. I'm gonna take off. Wait, I had no idea Rex Harrison was gay. I knew he had six wives. So it should be noted, I could not find confirmation of rumors that do exist that Rex Harrison was either gay or bisexual. He never came out as gay, for example. Independent of that, uh, Harrison and Lerner were considered this winning combo. And so on Christmas Day, 1963, uh, Jacobs, the producer who is taking on this project, signs an option for the Doolittle film rights. The following month, Alan Lerner signs on to the project to write the lyrics, and he's been hired to write the screenplay, even though he hasn't written a screenplay before. Uh, and in March, they get 20th Century Fox back into the deal. They sign on to distribute the project. Rex Harrison inks his deal. Everything's good to go. Quick note on things at Fox really quickly. So six months prior, in June of 1963, the studio had released Cleopatra, which was a giant clusterfuck of a movie. We'll get back to that mm -hmm. on a different episode. It nearly bankrupt the studio. In 1962, they lost $39 million, which is an insane amount of money for that point in time. So the Daryl Zanuck, the head of the studio, feeling like there's no one in the world he can trust to run production, hires his 28-year-old son, Dick Zanuck, <laughs> to be the head of production, feeling he's the only producer he can trust. Now, to be fair, Dick had shown promise. He produced his own first film at the age of 24, but there's all this criticism around the appointment. Like, is this nepotism, basically? So Dick Zanuck's taking over the studio at 28, and even though he's well-respected personally and professionally, and he'd go on to have a big producing career, I just want us to all keep in mind that there's a 28-year-old man at the head of a studio that nearly went out of existence the year before, and he's being put there by his father, who's telling him, like, oh, no. don't fuck it up. The pressure is intense on this young man. So Dick Zanuck really believes in the Doolittle property. He really believes in kids' movies at this point in time. And so he makes a press announcement right when they make this deal that Fox is going to release the film, the Dr. Doolittle adaptation, on Christmas Day in 1966. So three years later, <laughs> they make an announcement. Three years from now, count it. We're going to give you Dr. Doolittle as, quote, a gift to the world. Everyone's so excited. Like Rex Harrison's in. Okay. Everyone's in. Turns out Alan Lerner, not a fast writer. <laughs> so... <laughs> so the long and short of it is he kept pushing back the deadlines and never turned in a single outline or treatment, let alone a script. He claimed to be busy working on a different stage 
adaptation. Then he disappeared to Rome when Jacobs tried to like, confront him at his New York apartment until basically in May of 1965, over a year later, the studio's like, you have to give us something now or you're getting no money for this. He sends word through his agents that's like, we're so sorry. Mr. Lerner won't be able to start working on Dr. Doolittle until October of 1965. But he would still like to do the movie. So the studio fires him. They're like, we don't care how good you are with My Fair Lady. Like, you're off the project. And also, it should be noted that during this period, Lerner somehow managed to renegotiate his fee up from $100,000 to $350,000 without ever turning in a single word of script. This man's incredible. He is remarkable. So the delay on scripting had three major consequences. First, they've attached a director to the project. Now, Lizzie, this director has a direct relation to the last episode that we did. It is Vincente Minnelli, Liza Minnelli's father and Judy Garland's ex-husband at the time. So he was brought on. Isn't it just Vincent Minnelli? Yeah, but it's spelled Vincente. So I like to say it like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Vincent <laughs> so Vincent has been brought onto the movie but he has to drop it because the delay is interfering with his ability to take other work so they lose their director second the Christmas 1966 release date is like it's done it's not, it's not gonna happen and then third all of a sudden Rex Harrison is an international movie star So on December 25th, 1964, the film adaptation of My Fair Lady was a roaring success, released to $72.7 million at the box office against its $17 million budget. Huge Warner Brothers hit. It was three hours long. Did you know that? It's so long. Yeah, I do, because I've seen it. It's great. It is really long. so Um, long. But it's awesome. It's great. Uh, So Rex Harrison is now a worldwide movie star. He's opened opposite Audrey Hepburn, and he won an Academy Award for his performance. I didn't yep, know that. One best actor. So at first blush, this is great for Fox. They're like, our actor under contract for this movie has won an Oscar and is like one of the most successful actors in the world. All they need is a new lyricist and a new director, like a new screenwriter. The problem is that Rex Harrison is a dick and he realizes <laughs> that he holds the project's life in his hands. So suddenly he's the most powerful person attached to this thing. If he walks away, the movie falls apart. So Fox and Jacobs, the producer, decide that they're going to hire Leslie Brickus, who's a British lyricist who would later go on to write songs for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And that's kind of what he would be mostly known for. They then go out to director Richard Fleischer, who had just directed 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which had won Best Visual Effects the year before. Jacobs flew with Brickus and Fleischer to meet Harrison at his villa in Portofino, Italy. And he basically gave the writer and director a simple directive. Don't fuck this up. Get Rex Harrison to like you so I can hire you onto this movie. Because if Rex Harrison said no, they wouldn't be able to bring them onto the movie. Harrison shows up to lunch with Jacobs, Fleischer, and Brickus an hour and a half late at the restaurant right below his villa that they flew to Italy (laughs) to see him at. Easy power play move to start things up. Not only does he show up an hour and a half late, he decides to bring his wife, Rachel Roberts, who's shit-faced. It's worth just diving in. As you mentioned, Harrison has this troubled history with women. He was married six times. In 1942, he he divorced his first wife. He married Lily Palmer, an actress. While he was married to Palmer, he had an affair with the actress Carol Landis, who committed suicide in 1948 after spending the night with Harrison. Oh, no. He then waited several hours before calling a doctor or the police. 
causing a quote scandal that ended his contract with Fox, but there were no legal repercussions and no foul, uh, no foul play was ever found. But okay. So then Harrison divorced Palmer in 1957. He married actress Kay Kendall. She then died of leukemia in 1959, and then he married Rachel Roberts, his fourth wife, in 1962. So he's with Rachel Roberts now. Two of his past wives have died, one under very suspicious circumstances. Cool. Rachel Roberts is an actress, and she suffers from suicidal depression and violent mm. mood swings. Ooh, keep these women away from Rex Harrison. <laughs> I know. And these violent mood swings are made worse by her blackout drinking. Something that the director, writer, and producer team who've come to Italy would come to understand by the end of this lunch when, quote, Roberts blacked out, barking like a dog in a supposedly impromptu audition to provide the animal voiceover for the movie. Oh, no. So, like, just not a great situation. Rex Harrison, take her home. Take her upstairs. (laughs) He just, like, kept her around. He thought she was entertaining. Lizzie, let me ask you something. You've got a moderately successful podcast that requires you to watch a boatload of movies, right? Yep. Okay, so how do you find time to cook healthy, affordable meals? I don't. I've been eating delicious, ready-to-eat meals from Factor. They're chef-crafted, dietitian approved and delivered right to my door. Okay, but do they have snacks and smoothies, the only two things that my daughter currently eats? Uh, they sure do. There are over 35 different options every week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, veggie, and vegan for you and your vegan child. And the best part is when you sign up, you save money because Factor is less expensive than takeout. The napkin math checks out. I actually did it. Factor gets you a two-minute restaurant-quality meal on the table with no prep and no mess. Until my daughter throws it on my face. It's flexible for any schedule. Choose between 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash www50 and use code www50 to get 50% off. www50 at factormeals.com slash www50 to get 50% off. So Fleischer, who's an experienced director at this point, decides to gamble his relationship with Rex Harrison on a joke. So Harrison sits at the table. Fleischer doesn't say anything for a minute, takes a long look at him, and then totally deadpan just says to Rex Harrison, movie star, I'm sorry, I just don't think you're right for the part, and then gets up and walks away from the table. And everyone just goes dead (laughs) silent. And Jacobs is like, this guy just fucked up this whole thing in the first sentence. And then all of a sudden, Harrison smiles and starts laughing and then says, perhaps you're right. And Fleischer had won him over. Okay. Now, unfortunately uh, for Leslie Brickus, Rex Harrison had been really looking forward to working with his friend, Alan J. Lerner, again. And so he decided that he was going to make Leslie Brickus's life hell for as long as he was writing on the movie. <laughs> he would rip apart Leslie's lyrics whenever he read them. He decided that he wouldn't agree or disagree to Leslie's participation in the film until he finished his next scheduled shoot, The Honey Pot. And so that left Leslie in limbo. Like, he didn't know if he was going to be the credited writer on the movie or not. But luckily, Leslie was a pro. He got to work anyway. By July of that year, this is like two months after he was hired, he'd already delivered a rough draft, multiple songs, and he'd pulled out a lot of the book's racism. That was a big step. Apparently, Hugh Lofting's widow said she loved the script, and she thought it was a complete surprise that captured the spirit of Dr. Doolittle. So great work, Leslie, on that front. And if you do notice, like, the natives in the movie... Uh, less offensive than you would have thought. I Yeah, I will say, shockingly less racist than I expected. As soon as they crash-landed onto a, an island, I was just like, oh no, this is going to be bad. And then it actually wasn't that bad, so that I will give, no, give they that like to Dr. No, they speak nine languages, they read all the books, you know, it does, it's good. Unfortunately, Rex Harrison had a lot more demands. <clears throat> 
Jacobs and Fleischer had convinced the immensely popular Sammy Davis Jr. to play the leader of the Sea Star tribe, Bumpo, who was going to have a much bigger role in the movie. But Harrison said no. He said, I don't want to work with a song and dance man. And he said that it had to be Sidney Poitier or he would leave the project. Sir, it's a musical. (laughs) Indeed. What is wrong with a song and dance man? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So... Jacobs and Fleischer are like, okay, we have to get Sidney Poitier and we have to fire Sammy Davis Jr. So they, oh, no. they fly to New York. They meet with Poitier. They offer him $250,000 creative input on the project. And he agrees to take the role. They haven't told him that Sammy Davis Jr. was ever attached. or You know, there's, there's no mention of Sammy Davis Jr. They then go to the Majestic Theater where they're scheduled to see Sammy Davis Jr. perform in a show called Golden Boy that night. And they're supposed to have dinner with him afterwards where they're like planning to break the news to him. But Sammy Davis Jr. doesn't know anything. So apparently during the show, Sammy Davis Jr. like ad-libbed a line about Rex Harrison as like a homage to the producers in the audience because he's so excited about the project. And then these two guys go into his dressing room and Sammy Davis Jr. is like dancing about. He's like talking all of his ideas for... For the movies about to get fired from, and they're just sitting there like Aww. we're so we're such assholes. And then <laughs> to make it so much worse, who's the worst person that could walk into the room right then? Sidney Poitier, who was just independently friends with Sammy Davis Jr., decides I'm going to stop by my buddy Sammy Davis Jr.'s dressing room after <laughs> a show just to say hi. Walks through the door, and these guys are like, "Oh my god, I hope Sidney Poitier doesn't say anything about the role." And Sammy Davis Jr. brought up the movie, and Sidney Poitier, who's such a pro, says nothing. And then he just like walks out of the room they take sammy davis jr to dinner and they fire him and he was very upset he did threaten to sue he said he was gonna go to the naacp it should be noted though that davis did get a couple last jabs at the production in 1967 the studio actually asked him to record all of the songs to the movie and release it on an album to promote the movie uh Because his voice was so much better than Rex Harrison's. And when he performed it on TV, I think he gave it a little bit of his own flavor as a little fuck you to Rex Harrison. Uh, (laughs) So here's Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, In the film, Dr. Doolittle, for those of you who do not, believes in the philosophy that man should be able to communicate with animals. And Leslie Briggs has written one song for Rex Harrison, which he says, wish Rex is only Rex Harrison can. If we could talk to the animals, imagine chatting with a chimp and chimpanzee. Well, I figured if I sang it like that, I wouldn't get back in my neighborhood again. You know? <laughs> so we did a different version, and it goes like this. Look out. Ha, 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 ha. Ha. If I could talk to the animals, I'd just imagine it chatting with a chimp and chimpanzee. Wow. Okay, how much more fun is this version of the song? So much more fun. I want to see the movie where Sammy Davis Jr. is Dr. Doolittle, because that is a hundred million times better. So much better. Than Rex Harrison. So much better. He's so dynamic, and like his voice is good. He's great. I love it. So finishing up the casting side of things, so Julie Andrews and Barbara Streisand were both offered the role of... <laughs> oh my God. If that had been Barbara Streisand. She, she comes back later in the best way. You're going to love it. So Julie Andrews and Barbara Streisand are both offered the role of Emma Fairfax, who's like the cook woman on the ship. No reason to be there outside no. of the fact that they figured they needed a woman somewhere in the Also, movie. not in the original book, was written 
as like a composite character for the movie. Um, Clearly. They proved to be too expensive for the production to afford. And so they went on to the young Maggie Smith, who was co-starring with Rex Harrison on The Honey Pot, but negotiations with her broke down. So the role eventually went to the 26-year-old Samantha Egger, who had just been nominated for a Supporting Actress Oscar in her performance in The Collector. I don't know much about Samantha Egger. She seemed fine. And she kind of came and went. Now, unfortunately... As they're getting the movie ready, Harrison is just getting into like a shittier and shittier mood from afar that's just like spiraling everything. And the reason is that like the things on this movie, The Honeypot, that he was all excited to do are not going well. The studio mandated that they rewrite the script and Harrison doesn't like the rewrites because he doesn't have as many lines in the rewrites. The production faced delays when the first cinematographer was fired and the second one died suddenly. (laughs) Like everyone just dies during these movies back in the 60s. And then also Harrison's wife, Rachel Roberts, had spiraled into an alcohol and barbiturate-fueled depression after Maggie Smith had won the role that she'd auditioned for in the project. So she thought since Rex was the lead, they would give her, you know, maybe a shot at the other role. Poor Rachel. And Maggie Smith was younger than her, I think. It was just really bad. Um... So when Harrison could turn his attention to Doolittle, he basically took out all of his like negative, destructive emotions on that project because he couldn't do it on the honeypot. So Harrison also demanded that he be allowed to perform all of his songs live on set rather than do a pre-record and lip sync, which was industry standard never at good. the time. And he's not even a good singer. So no. Harrison's uh, reason was that he not so secretly hated Brickus's lyrics. And I think he basically wanted to be able to change them as he saw fit during production. Whereas if they pre-recorded them, they'd be locked in. I think it's important to note here as well that Rex Harrison doesn't really sing no. in this movie. And, and honestly, when I thought about it, not really in My Fair Lady either. He does this just like very rhythmic talking thing that's all the way through. And then sometimes <laughs> he'll sort of sing a note, but then it's back to this and here we are again. And yes. he starts to sing. That was too it much makes singing. makes me nervous. That yeah. was like more singing than Rex Harrison by a lot. <laughs> It's he, really just so bad. <laughs> apparently they called it talking on pitch. And it was if like that. It was <laughs> like it was his strategy to get through the day. And like that's what he did <sighs> constantly. And it became like a method for actors who couldn't sing. Like it he popularized it. He was like it's the so first bad. one. It's like if Hamilton were just really bad. That's that's it's, what it it's that really, felt like. It's really bad. It's bad spoken word with a British guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not only that, it's like an ego thing. So Samantha Eggers' voice was dubbed, for example, by a singer. Oh, because I was going to say she sounded great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, he could have been dubbed, but he didn't want them. He didn't want to be dubbed. Um, Cool. So in the meantime, Brickus has turned in a full draft of the script. That's on October 22nd, 1965. And it's important to note, this is just a few months after Fox's The Sound of Music exploded onto the scene. It made almost $300 million at the box office. Rave reviews. Yeah, it's better than My Fair Lady. Oh, it's amazing. It's like, I think it's the best musical of all time, maybe. Dick Zanuck is now all of a sudden, he's 31 and he's like boy genius, head of Fox, right? Because like he released The Sound of Music. And all of a sudden, every studio in Hollywood is like, all we want is a fucking three hour roadshow musical. <laughs> like they had such hard ons for musical. They all start going into production. So Jacobs and Zanuck read Brickus's script and they send it back to him. And all they say is, 
it needs to be bigger and it needs to be longer because we no. <laughs> yes <laughs> so a script that could barely justify a one hour running time all of a sudden they're like we need this to be at least two and a half hours long so we can justify an intermission and a roadshow style release oh my god all of a sudden it's like the kitchen sink is getting thrown at dr doolittle not everybody at fox agrees with this approach daryl zanuck dick's father who still owns the studio had been sent the script as well and here's what he wrote to his son tell me if you think these concerns proved prescient quote since this is the most expensive project on our entire program we have got to be positive that the final script will be a masterpiece which it is not The production would be a hell of a mess. They would be able to maybe do half of the planned animal scenes. If they overshot it at all, meaning if they went over budget, the movie wouldn't be able to return a profit. Apparently, these two had a hyper-competitive father-son relationship, so Dick responded very defensively and was like, I'm very confident that we can pull this movie off, and we need to go forward with the bigger is better approach. Unfortunately, I think Daryl, the dad, would prove to be... 100% right. Right. Of course... Rex Harrison is not going to just go along with the most recent version of the script that they've sent him <laughs> because he was in a bad mood when he got it. So, sure. so he reads the script and he sends a letter, he sends a telegram that says, quote, the script was clearly not written for me, which is literally impossible. He's been sending notes to the writer for the last eight months, forcing him to do whole versions of the script with his notes in it. He oh says, it's not for me. I'm not going to do pratfalls. I will not be sung to. It was written for a short fat man. <laughs> I don't know. How, I don't know how you know that. And he suggests they hire Cary Grant. And then. Uh, Honestly, great. Get him in there. Yeah, exactly. Jacobs and Zanuck are shocked. And they're like, Rex, we'll get back to you. They circle up and they kind of decide, you know what? This Rex Harrison guy is just too much. Uh, We can't deal with him anymore. We got to just move on. And so Rex Harrison clearly was doing this for leverage and he's overplayed his hand. Now, Lizzie, what star who had just blown up with the sound of music might be a good fit as Dr. (gasps) Doolittle? Christopher Plummer, most handsome man of the 60s. (laughs) Most handsome man. (laughs) So handsome. He was, still is. Uh, Yeah. So Captain Von Trapp. Yes, uh, Christopher Plummer, indeed. So tired of Harrison's shit, the Xanax and Jacobs de- decide to replace Rex Harrison with Christopher Plummer. Would have been better. Also, wait, Christopher Plummer can sing, right? He's singing he can in sing. Sound of Music. He can oh, sing. Get him in there. Hire him. <laughs> win, win, win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the studio buys out his contract on a Broadway play for $90,000. They agree to pay him $250,000 for the role. And then Rex Harrison hears that they're replacing him and is like, oh my God, I fucked this up because the Honeypot movie's not going well. So he actually needs to get paid for this movie. So on December 30th, only three weeks after he said he was leaving the project, his agents send word that he is, quote, fully committed to Doolittle. And he claims uh. and he claims to have been unaware of the demands forwarded by his agents. He says they were operating without his consent for all of this time. Oh, Tries, sure. Throws them under the bus. And Zanuck wrote back respectively, quote, you are always our number one choice and we're very sorry things didn't work out. And then they fired him. So, yeah. so for a brief moment, this movie like has a chance. Unfortunately, (laughs) over the next two weeks, Harrison and his team like fucking grovel like no one's groveled before. And one of the things that they do, which I'm sure is true, but it's just so fucking shady, is Rex Harrison uses the recent suicide attempt of his wife, Rachel Roberts, as the excuse 
for why he's been so difficult to deal with. So she'd attempted to overdose on pills while they were shooting the honeypot, and he's like, that's why. So... (sighs) Poor lady. Fox, knowing that because they have a contract with Rex, they don't want to get into legal action with him, so they bring him back onto the project. They fire Christopher Plummer, who's basically like, that's fine, because he just got paid $90,000 not to be in a play, and he also like didn't have to be in this movie. So they bring... Harrison back. But meanwhile, back on the Fox lot, various accountants have looked at the expanded script, the bigger is better script, and they've realized that the movie's not going to cost $6 million, which was the original budget. It's actually going to cost $14.4 million. And Dick Zanuck's like, oh, no, this is a lot more than I thought it was going to be. So even though he was riding high on the sound of music, he's like, let's just cut $2 million out of the budget. So they start trying to find things to cut out of the budget. And some things are easy, like Rex Harrison was demanding they continue to bring in new lyricists to write alternate versions of Brickus's songs. And they were just like, we're going to put the kibosh on that. Uh, And then they realized that the thing that would save the most money is if they cut the character Bumpo, who Sidney Poitier was playing, who they'd owe $400,000 for the role. Now... There were two big problems with this plan. Number one was that nobody told Brickus that Bumpo was potentially being cut. So during every rewrite, he just made the character a bigger and bigger part of the story <laughs> because <laughs> they were like, we're paying Sidney Poitier a lot of money. Let's give him a lot of scenes. And then they're oh, like, no. they're like, they're like, no, Brickus, you got to lose all those scenes. Like, not going to work. And then on top of that, <laughs> they're terrified of the PR backlash of firing America's only black Oscar winning actor from the production. And this is like yeah. like a big movie this next year is going to be in the heat of the night. Like this is a big moment for race relations in America. So they're like, oh my God, we have to do this and it's going to be awful. And in an insanely lucky break though, it turns out that Poitier hadn't actually signed his contract yet because his agent was still negotiating a couple of points. So basically the agent comes to them and they're like, can we just change these two things? And the studio's like, that's just way too much. And they told, <laughs> and they told him to fuck off. And then contract <laughs> negotiations broke down. And Sidney Poitier walked away from the movie. It was like, could he have like one extra Only chair? Green m <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get out of my office. <laughs> so, and then, meanwhile, they're like, whew, we dodged that bullet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so then when Poitier leaves, Harrison again threatens to quit because he's like, the only actor on this project besides me was oh, Sidney Poitier. And they're just like, Harrison, shut up. Shut, <laughs> shut up. Shut the fuck up. Shut up. And Harrison was like, fine. <laughs> and so he actually <laughs> shut up there. So summer production starts and they've basically shaved $2 million from the budget. And then all of a sudden that $2 million just gets eaten right back up because of course, actors, animals, everything. Animals. It's a nightmare. Uh, The first thing I said, as soon as this movie started, I just said, oh no, look at all these animals on this 1960 set. It's like, it's just like there, there's like 50 animals in one room within the first two scenes of the movie. Yeah. So here's some various examples. It costs over $100,000 to teach a chimpanzee how to cook bacon in a frying pan. Didn't need that. <laughs> Not only that, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't have to teach one chimp. You had to teach the two understudy chimps, too, no. in case the you, first chimp... You don't need it. <laughs> in case the first chimp shit himself. <laughs> so then... So then they had to pay Brickus. They had to pay Brickus another $100,000. Because they just kept making him work on the script because Rex Harrison, they basically were like, we're not going to use these changes, but like, we're going to pay you to be Rex Harrison's little typewriter boy. And like, no, and then, this poor man. Yes. 
it turns out so like Anthony Anthony Newley who gets brought on to play Matthew Mugg who's like the offensively Irish character um <laughs> he gets brought onto the project and apparently he's really good friends with Brickus so like they have a good back and forth and then Harrison becomes paranoid that Brickus and Newley are conspiring to reduce Harrison's role and expand Matthew oh Mugg's role and Harrison turns out raging anti-semite and uh, Newly is Jewish, and so Harrison, to his face, would call him a Cockney Jew or that Jew comic. And then, oh my God! Oh yeah, and then behind his back, he would say like a lot worse things than that. And that's just the start of some of the racism we'll get to. Speaking of animals, the production heads to the quaint town of Castle Combe, England, which had just literally won the award for the quaintest town in England right before they started shooting. <laughs> Unfortunately, filming was delayed. Production class balloon due to the fact that no one at Fox realized that all of the animals that had been trained in California would have to be quarantined as soon as they reached England. <laughs> So they show up in England and they're like, sir, you can't bring the animals off the plane. And they're like, oh, fuck. And so they, they, and it's not like a week. It's like months of quarantine. So they have to conscript an entirely new set of animals in England. They had to find them in oh, England. And, and these are British. These are not Hollywood animals. These are, these are now these British are animals. wild British animals that have to be <laughs> trained. And so they ship all the exotic animals back to uh, Los Angeles and hold them until they can shoot with them in the studio and they get all these new animals. So in terms of total numbers, how many animals total do you think worked on this movie? So many. Um, total numbers. Okay, I'm going to say like I'll say like like 200. 1,200 to 1,500 animals were, what? were brought on to work on Dr. Doolittle. So yes. Uh, on were they like counting all the flies or something? How <laughs> no, they get no, there? no. The flies are a separate issue. <laughs> um, so uh, they, that was because they had so many birds. And then they had like, f- like for every main character, they had all the understudies too. So it wasn't like one sheep. It was five sheep. And it wasn't one chimp, it was five chimps. And it, it was just like, so everything multiplied. And then, so like, these animals are fighting, they're humping, they're pooping on each other, they're like lunging, they're screaming. The script called for a goat to climb up the neck of a giraffe, for lions to play patty cake. They Excuse me? Yeah, they, they needed understudies for, quote, Chi-Chi the chimp, Jip the dog, Polynesia the parrot, Sheila the fox, Toggles the bespectacle horse, and Sophie the seal. Gub uh, Gub the piglet was replaced every two weeks because piglets outgrow their cute phase too fast. And so they just like kept Aww. having to bring in new piglets. <laughs> there was a group of cats that refused to follow Anthony Newley down the street, <laughs> even after they covered him in fish guts, which was trying to like, attract the cats behind him. A goat ate Fleischer's script and it kicked down the walls of one of the sets. Uh, yeah, don't mess around with goats. They'll kick you in the head. Mary the rhino came down with a viral infection, and the only way they could inject her with penicillin, <laughs> penicillin was by putting the in- injection in an elephant gun and firing it into her, which is the most insane thing I've ever heard. That can't be right. There's <laughs> no. no way that there's no, no way no. that that is the standard no. procedure. No, it's not. No <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> they. They had to fly a new rhino in from Mombasa to Hollywood because Mary then took two weeks to recover. Uh, Harrison was... You shot her (laughs) with an elephant gun. (laughs) Harrison was bitten by a chimp, a Pomeranian, a duck, and a parrot. Uh, Hell yeah. One scene required ducks in a pond, and they grabbed the ducks and threw them in the pond 
but they forgot the fact that the ducks had just molted right beforehand, so they didn't have waterproof feathers, and all the ducks sank instantly, and they had to, like, dive into the pond and pull the ducks out so they wouldn't drown. When a squirrel wouldn't sit still, they filled a fountain pen with gin and fed it to the creature drop by drop to get it drunk enough to stay quiet for a shot. Rex Harrison wrote in his journal that, quote, they got a few seconds of film showing the squirrel nodding and swaying before it passed out cold. Oh, my God. Two urban legends I couldn't confirm but were in these books was a parrot apparently learned how to mimic the first assistant director's voice yelling cut to the confusion of the crew. Oh, my God. (laughs) And more tragically, a giraffe (laughs) had to shut down production. (laughs) Oh, no. When a giraffe (laughs) stepped on its own penis. (laughs) What? A giraffe. Why? W- I don't know. Apparently, Why giraffe- would that shut down production? Just step off of it. You like step- it stepped on its own penis and it hurt itself so bad that they didn't. <laughs> so in. It was so insane. <laughs> oh. That was, the, it, that was the same giraffe that was on the cover of, of Life magazine. <laughs> Really? Yeah, Rex Harrison was like on its back <laughs> on the cover of Life magazine, and apparently the cor- oh. the choreographer on the movie was like going back and forth between a different production, and he shows up at the other production, and they're like, "Oh, you're early," and they're like, "Yeah, we had to shut down for three days," and they're like, "Why?" And he goes, "The giraffe stepped on its own cock." And he's like, "What is happening?" Oh uh, no! Ugh. I hope it's okay. It, it, it lived. It was fine. Uh, so once again. The animals were only the start of it. No one checked the weather report. Turns out it rains in this town all day, every day. So for two yeah, months... It's a town in England. <laughs> yeah, for two months, they only shot for five days without rain interruptions. Tensions with the residents ran high. The production insisted that they had to remove all the antennas from the roofs of the houses so it looked period appropriate. And all the tenants were like, we want to watch television. <laughs> yeah. It got really dicey. One local attempted to blow up part of the set after the team dammed a local river for a shot. It's, the sh- it's like early in the movie, they're going across a bridge in the town. Yeah. And it's like they had to dam it to make it look deep. <clears throat> anyway, production falls further and further behind. And Jacobs is feeling the pressure, the producer. Uh, The weather turns the fields into mud. Multiple animals are getting pneumonia. They can't shoot with any of, like, the lions and stuff because they're back in Hollywood. And so basically he makes the call. We're going to leave England now, and we're going (laughs) to rebuild every set on a soundstage in L.A. and reshoot almost all of this back in Los Angeles. So, like, outside of some of those exterior shots, all of that was painstakingly recreated in Los Angeles, doubling the production costs. And as he's preparing to leave for Los Angeles, Jacob suffers a heart attack. <laughs> so the producer, oh, no. he was overweight, smoked a lot, <clears throat> has a heart attack. The production has to trudge on. They go back to L.A. They're, it's just a struggle. They have to build the sets on a slant, and they have to be able to push the floors up so that they can more easily wipe the poop and pee off of it as like the animals oh, are constantly shitting God. themselves. That, speaking of flies, were, they were just everywhere, constantly. All of, all of the fabrics have to be plastic or painted so they wouldn't get stained. You'd think the lion costume in The Wizard of Oz was bad. Like, literally everything had to be hosed down, drained, and dried and smelled awful on the set. Everything needed duplicates, even the walls, because if an animal kicked a hole in one, they had to fly in a new <laughs> one, like, instantly. They had to start inoculating the actors because the animal trainers kept coming down with hepatitis after being bit- <laughs> Hidden by the animals. Oh my god. <laughs> and of course, 
the last issue is noise. The animals are so loud all the yeah. time. <laughs> like none of the dialogue was usable. So all of the re-recording costs are going up, you know, for later in post. Well, also, because all of the animal scenes, they're inside. Like, yeah. it's, it's very and, but it's, minimal outdoor scenes. And it's not, it's like the animal's in frame, and there's like 50 backup birds to the side that are all like, wah, yeah. wah, wah, like screaming at everyone. <laughs> so then they shoot in LA. The team then heads to St. Lucia in the Caribbean to shoot the Africa sequences, or like the Sea Star Island sequences in October. The deal is like Harrison's going to live on a yacht with Rachel Roberts. Anthony Newley is going to bring his kids and wife. And it's going to be like a great tropical vacation until he gets a telegram from the unit production manager. And here's what it says. Quote, recommend Newley not bring children. Stop. <laughs> Insect. Terrible. From very wet summer. Stop. Everyone covered in welts and sores. Stop. Two people. Bad infections. From bites. Stop. Six people. Dysentery. Stop. Please send bug spray. Stop. <laughs> and that's <laughs> what he sent from St. Lucia. Oh, my uh, God. <clears throat> so filming starts up. It's shut down every other day by tropical storms. There's, like, fleas everywhere. The actors are getting bit constantly. But, of course, Rex Harrison and Rachel Roberts are, like, the two nightmares on set more than anything else. This is what Samantha Egger said of her co-star. I quote, often had a wonderful time with Rex. I mean, yes, he was unkind and vitriolic and very mean-spirited, <laughs> <laughs> but he was also very funny. Until, of course, he turned on me, too. So during one shoot day where Fleischer was filming Anthony Newley and Harrison was not needed on set, Harrison piloted his boat into the middle of the scene and refused to move it for two hours, ruining the shot and preventing filming, presumably due to another contract dispute. So he was willing to just, oh, like, shut down production God. when he wasn't the center of attention. Things only got worse when his wife showed up. So Rachel Roberts shows up and she's openly racist towards Jeffrey Holder, who played William Shakespeare the Tenth. And he's a Trinidad-born actor. He's also a writer and director, very accomplished. It's he was awesome. He like the second he showed up, he was one yeah. of the like easily the best part of the movie. Yeah. So she's like openly racist toward him. She's like, What's it like hanging out with this type of person? What's it like being on this side of the set? What's it like being on wow. this part of the boat? Like it was just unbelievable the stuff she would say. Now, beyond that. Because of the position of Roberts and Harrison's yacht out in the middle of the bay that they're shooting on, they would get in these huge late night drunk screaming matches that would just carry across the water and everyone could hear them everywhere. One, one night, the seal takers thought that their seals were in distress, but it was just Roberts screaming off the bow of her boat. One day, Rachel Roberts fakes a suicide attempt by leaving her shoes on the deck of a boat, wrapping her clothes around a log, screaming, throwing it into the bay, and hiding below decks. On another okay. night, she gets drunk and makes a wild swim for the seal tank, screaming that she's going to free them. They had to stop her from doing so. Even, like, the seemingly simple shots of the fucking giant snail just sitting in the shallow end of the water was complicated by the fact that the St. Lucian, like, native people would run up and start throwing rocks at it at random times because uh, oh. recently a lot of their children had been made ill by something caused by a fresh eating freshwater snails. So they would run out, and they thought the production had made this, like, effigy to a demon in front of them and, like, throw rocks at it. And on top of it, it looked terrible. So they get through that. They go back to Los Angeles. There's, it's like supposed to be like a few more weeks of shooting, and that lasts four more months. The budget's climbing and climbing until it hits $18 million. It's like literally three times what it was supposed to initially cost. Jacobs and Zanuck are freaking out, and they're like just killing the messengers. Like if anyone gives them bad news, they're getting fired from the project. The editor comes to them, and she's like, hey, I think we should revise the schedule. And they're like, you're fired. Leave. Like We can't, we can't <laughs> oh, deal with no. you right now. 
and somehow Rachel Roberts and Rex Harrison are still together and they've rented a house in Beverly Hills and their problems are now all of a sudden dangerously public because they're in LA. So yeah. one night, Harrison and his wife terrified a room full of Hollywood establishment, including Billy Wilder and Jimmy Stewart and their wives, when at a party in the L.A. restaurant, The Bistro, he began singing a song about his penis to the tune of I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face, while his wife, Rachel Roberts, who was not wearing underwear, did handstands. (laughs) What? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Honestly, <laughs> I would really love to go back in time to like it was, between the 40s and 60s in Hollywood. It was insane. <laughs> a disaster. So production wraps in April 1967. It lasted 10 months. Fleischer and Jacobs began the arduous process of trying to sell a movie that they really know probably isn't worth seeing. So Doolittle's final cost was $18 million, and they would then spend $11 million marketing it. To make matters even worse, Warner Brothers releases Camelot, which is like a three-hour musical roadshow movie. It's the first one post Sound of Music, and it tanked. And all of a sudden, the industry's like, wait, maybe people actually aren't interested in musicals. And it was the fact that The Sound of Music was just great and like a really compelling story that made it so successful. There are literally 13 different musicals at this scale in production around Hollywood. And everyone's like, oh my God, like we are all fucked right now uh zanuck at the time said you look back now and ask how could you be so stupid dr doolittle was conceived in a period of euphoria we were all riding a musical wave that we didn't realize was going to come crashing down on the beach all at once well the key part of this though is that they're called musicals and generally they tend to need to have some sort of songs yes (laughs) um and music that is memorable and catchy none of which this had so like You can't just put music in a movie and call it a musical. That's not how it works. Indeed. Helen Winston, that producer from the top of our story, files a lawsuit for four and a half million dollars against the studio saying that they had ripped off her original screenplay. Turns out that idea for the animal strike was from the the screenplay that she had had commissioned. Oh, man. Brickus read that screenplay, assumed that the animal strike was from the books and had included it, but it actually wasn't from the books. So Helen Winston owned it. And they then had to pay her off. It wasn't for the full four and a half, but they settled for a lot of money. And meanwhile, these guys are like, we've got a fucking turd on our hands. And they're just like, we don't care. We're going to sell this thing so hard. The media blitz included half a million copies of a soundtrack being issued in stores four months before the film's release, including a cover of Talk to Animals recorded by Bobby Darin, Tony Bennett, and Dizzy Gillespie. What? Sammy Davis Jr., as I mentioned, was hired to re-record an album featured in the film. Bobby Darin did another version called Bobby Darin Sings Dr. Doolittle that was released simultaneously. Like, the marketing machine on this thing was nuts. They bought out the cover of Life magazine. They partnered with 50 (laughs) companies to create 300 unique items to sell in stores that would be associated with the film. They had 35,000 stand-up cutouts of Harrison as Doolittle made and placed in stores around the country. The merchandising created for the movie was valued at north of $200 million. Well, this explains why my dad loved this. Because in 1967, he would have been eight years old. So an eight-year-old seeing this everywhere. Yeah, you would watch it. So Mark Harris, the author of one of those books I mentioned, says, Dick Zanuck and his lieutenants told themselves that it wouldn't matter. That if they just announced loudly and frequently enough how wonderful their, quote, Christmas gift to the world was, nobody would look too closely once they unwrapped the box. 
that shows you their strategy. So the reviews of Doolittle were as expected rough. Here's what I would call the most positive review from Variety. They wrote, quote, the overall entertainment value of Dr. Doolittle is hard to pinpoint. Is it a good motion picture? The answer varies according to what the individual <laughs> expects for his money. <laughs> Which I think is just like such a great, great backhanded compliment. Dr. Doolittle opened opposite the Jungle Book, which had been out for a couple months, but was still killing it at the box office. The movie gets released. It does terribly. After they factor in their marketing and everything, the studio basically lost $11 million. Zanuck and Fleischer, that's the head of the studio and the director, rebounded almost instantly because they went on to make Planet of the Apes almost immediately afterwards. And so Zanuck did just fine. Rex Harrison's film career tanked with this movie. He acted in literally seven more movies from 1968 to 1982. Every single one failed critically and commercially. There wasn't a single good one in there. He retired in 1982 from film and he just did stage work. He was knighted in 1989. He and Rachel Roberts finally split in 1971. She acted in a few more things. And then in 1980, she actually made a final attempt to reconcile with Harrison and tried to win him back. And when she failed, she killed herself in 1980. So she had a very tragic life. Uh, Rex Harrison died of pancreatic cancer in 1990 at the age of 82. Dr. Doolittle has been remade twice since the 1998 Eddie Murphy one, which I would argue was like a moderate success. It was a fine movie. I was going to say that one's fine. Had a yeah. great Aaliyah song they had a on sequel. the soundtrack. And then most recently, 2019's Doolittle starring Bobby Downey mm-hmm. Deuces, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, <laughs> doing <laughs> what is maybe a Welsh accent. And I'm sure in a few years we'll be ready to do an episode on that one. My question is like, why? why is this an enduring story? The books sound like they're kind of trash. The idea is like not particularly inventive. It's just a doctor that talks to animals. It's, I like, think it's that's the it. Q value, like the Q value. It's like people just know the name. And so they're like, oh, yeah, Doolittle. I know what that is. And so all the executives are like, yeah, let's remake it. It's like Santa Claus. Everyone knows what it is. So however challenging this movie was going to be made by the nature of its animals and locations, etc., how, however bad it was because of its script, the fact is Rex Harrison just made everything exponentially worse. I really tried to find something redeeming here. Like, was there a childhood trauma? Blah, you know, anything. And really what I could come down to is like Rex Harrison was a bully, an egomaniac, and he was an asshole. I mean, I think it's worth noting that like his performance in My Fair Lady works because he's playing an egomaniacal asshole. Like that is that character. Someone yeah. who's so full of themselves and so sure of their own capabilities that they're willing to literally ruin a woman's life yes. for an experiment. That's the character. Yeah. So A plus, he did great at that. But anything else is a little tough. I agree. However much I dug, I couldn't find anything that would exonerate the man. <laughs> so what went right? I have two what went right. One is snarky and the other one's not. My snarky one is I am not a big musical fan and I'm okay with this ending musicals for a little while in Hollywood and, <laughs> and moving on to some other types of movies. Uh, so that's my first take. The second is I do think some of the effects were good and, and obviously we're watching now in high definition. This was played back in the day. You know, it was being projected. It was harder to see those types of details. That's it. Thank you so much for listening to our coverage of 1967's Dr. Doolittle. Uh, Friendly reminder for your own health and safety, do not watch 1967's (laughs) Dr. Doolittle. Feel free to dive into either of the other ones. As always, 
shoot us an email at whatwentwrongpod at gmail.com or through Instagram at whatwentwrongpod with recommendations of films that you would like us to cover in the future. Yeah. We will talk to you soon. Get out of here and don't step on your own penis. If you do, <laughs> you're very lucky. Congratulations. You either have very short legs or very David's What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Euthana Uos. Thank you.